the software category known as no-code describes a set of tools that can be used to build software without writing large amounts of code in a programming language. No-code tools use visual interfaces such as spreadsheets and web-based drag-and-drop systems. In previous shows, we've covered some of the prominent no-code products, such as Airtable, Webflow, and Bubble. It's clear that no-code tools can be used to build core software infrastructure in a manner that is more abstract than the typical software engineering model of writing code. No-code tools do not solve everything. You can't use a no-code tool to build a high-performance distributed database or a real-time multiplayer video game, but they are certainly useful for building internal tools and basic CRUD applications. We know that no-code tools can create value, but how do they fit into the overall workflow of a software company? How should teams be arranged now that knowledge workers can build certain kinds of software without writing code? And how should no-code systems interface with the monoliths, microservices, and APIs that we've been building for years? Sean Wang is an engineer with Netlify, which is a cloud provider that's focused on delivering high-quality development and deployment experience. Netlify is not a no-code platform, but Sean has explored and written about the potential of no-code systems. Since Sean comes from a code-heavy background, he's well-positioned to give a realistic and reasonably unbiased perspective on how no-code systems might evolve to play a role in the typical software development lifecycle. Also, Sean is just a fascinating guy and an interesting speaker. He's only been programming for a couple years, and he's learned very rapidly. So there's also a lot in this show about how to educate yourself on software subjects. We're looking for a writer if you are interested in writing about computer science and software engineering and earning a little bit of extra money, we have this part-time writer role. And we're also looking for an operations lead. If you can help us make our business run more effectively, then we'd love to hire you for a part-time operations lead. If you're interested in either of these roles, send me an email, jeff at softwareengineeringdaily.com. And I hope you enjoyed this episode. John Wang, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, thanks for having me. Pleasure to have you. This has been a long time coming. You happen to be in town for the No Code Conference, and we're going to talk about a lot of things, but I think that's a good jumping off point. Why is No Code interesting to software engineers? I think that's interesting on some kind of two two sort of broad dimensions. So the first dimension is that I think there's a lot of undifferentiated heavy lifting that we do as software engineers, where we kind of code the same solutions to, for, for ourselves over and over and over again. And obviously, we tend to have like a not invented here syndrome, where the stuff that we do, we, we try to you know, make sufficient, but really we should be pawning that off to, to someone else. So no code in, in that perspective is kind of using someone else's platform library. So as engineers, we're, we're, and and particularly, you know, I'm from the JavaScript ecosystem. I'm very used to employing, you know, other people's libraries and code for that. Why stop there, right? Like why not, why stop at APIs? Like, and then there's this whole rise of the API economy. Uh, why, why stop there? Why, why not have them create the UIs for me, for me to manipulate uh, that code? To me, that's, that's a much higher plane of productivity than 
the me directly manipulating strings and, and text. And so that's the first dimension. And then the second dimension is I think it's an opportunity for developers to serve other people. Like a lot of a lot of our as developers, a lot of the way that we view solutions and problems out there in the world is if there's more problem, if there's a problem out there, then the solution is more code. And you know, we we tend to heap uh, code on top of on top of solutions. Unfortunately, that's not very accessible to the to the vast majority of people out there who don't code. And so, if we kind of serve that serve the no code market, we tend to make it more accessible to to a vast vast number of users. And they are actually less demanding. I, I feel like so they they just have a certain few use cases that they that they really want to serve. And I think that's that's really interesting. Like you know, I I work my day job. I work at uh, Netlify and we. We are a developer-facing company, but there are all these, uh, there are there are a ton of use cases and a ton of complexity to manage. Um, and you know, I do, I do, I do look at the no-code space as like a different target audience with much more standardized, simpler demands, and they're more willing to pay because developers are famously not willing to pay for stuff. And and so, as, as I think from a business opportunity, that's no-code is very interesting. And for developer productivity perspective, no-code is also super interesting. I think the thing that if if I think back to the conversations I've had with people who are concerned about no code or or who are not maybe they're curious about it but they haven't actually tried it out or they're afraid of trying it out my sense is that they're afraid that when they get to the point where the no code solution is too abstract too coarse grained they're afraid they won't be able to duck down into the code. So like React, for example, there's lots of open source React components. If a React component isn't performant enough for you, you can just fork it and like rewrite it, right? With no code, that may or may not be the case, right? Because this is like closed source proprietary code and people are afraid of that. To what extent is that a valid concern? Uh, I think it is very valid. And you know you should be worried about platform lock- lock-in through that. Uh, and I think poorly designed no code platforms will happen and people will get burned but that doesn't mean that it's impossible for a good abstraction to form where it's very clear what the responsibility of the of the platform is and if you need to eject there are ways to to do that so webflow for example does export to html and, and css and you can you can it actually is maintainable code that you could take over yourself so to me that's that's very attractive and i think we're still learning how to do these right and the better the more we do it and the more we understand uh, where the where the seams lie we can start to understand where where the convenience stops and the complexity starts to take over that, that we should um, in-house that. But I think a lot of times, most of the times, we're just like raising that concern preemptively to stop ourselves from even trying it out in the first place. And I think that's wrong. I think to have that sort of vision as, as a developer that, um, oh, I'm better than this. I'm, I'm better than a no-code tool because I can code everything myself. And like, what about this, 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 this edge case, which you maybe never hit because a lot of times, like, what if you're just doing an MVP? Like, you should just be delegating to that simpler, commoditized, uh, intuitive, visual platform to build out your functionality. And if you do need to eject, you have that skill. Uh, and that's, I think that's something that maybe software developers underappreciate. Like we are trained to think in, in abstractions. We're trained to take different tools, assess, analyze, and, and put them together to produce business value. And I don't view no code as any different from that category of tools. It just, they're, they're just targeted at a broader audience than just you. If we look at something like Twilio, Twilio fulfills a very specific purpose. It 
does your telecom stuff. It sends your text messages, for and email. And email and a lot of other things. But if we just look at like the text message use case, okay, Twilio is fulfilling my SMS notifications or two-factor authentication through SMS. It's very well-defined, and I can build my application with the knowledge that that is a dependency that I'm paying for, and it's proprietary, and I can be comfortable with that. And I'm, I'm comfortably abstracting away that, that duty to Twilio. No code, it's fulfilling a broader set of characteristics. And I think people are afraid of there being too many things that it's fulfilling. And so you, you know, so you, I mean, do we have, do we have a concise perspective for the duties that you want a particular low code platform to satisfy? Is it like, is it the UI layer? Is it like your Shopify store? What is the, what what are the barriers or what what are the borders around which the no code solutions are satisfying so i don't think there is a definitive i, I think drawing of the lines yet i think uh, a lot of people a lot of people are just trying to figure it out and you know by the way i'm not an expert in this i'm i'm very much dipping my toe in the water as well my perspective is that basically everything can have visual layer to it. And I, I recently wrote a blog post on the Webflow blog uh, about this, where it's, it's a no fact. No code is a lie. No code is a lie. It's a fact that the API economy won, right? Stripe, Twilio, everything as a, as a service, that has won. But why stop at just the API layer? Uh, the API layer still requires people to write, ring up extra code, still requires documentation for people to make use of it, right? So why stop there? Why not add an additional graphical user interface layer. So I, I kind of call this the GUI economy um, that that lets you hook stuff up within the GUI graphical user yeah. interface, the GUI economy. Which to a lot of people is the ultimate uh, vision of no code or low code, right? Like that, that you're, that you're sort of, you know, creating, you're formatting the business logic mm-hmm. or you're creating all these commands or scheduling actions or whatever through a visual interface that's purpose-built for that. Mm-hmm. So you cannot make mistakes. You It's easier to, to discover um, whatever capability is out there, and you're just spending less time in your terminal and more time, uh, and and you're you're just leveraging things that have been proven and tested to to work. So I'm definitely more on the more permissive side of this debate, where I think that everything can be improved with an extra no code layer, which. Like we have this arbitrary thing of like where, what what programming looks like, which doesn't, which has moved over time and will continue to move beyond where we are in this in this point in history. So one really key example uh, I can I can sort of provide to you as a again as a developer, right, is that uh, the Vue ecosystem is one of the more sort of beginner friendly ecosystems out there in the JavaScript world, and they used to have a, a CLI a command line interface where you just type in uh, commands in your terminal, and that kind of looks a little bit you know it's a little bit inaccessible and it's hard to discover what's available out there. So they're investing in a graphical user interface for this CLI. It's called the Vue CLI UI. And it's like, why would you have a UI for your CLI? And it's purely because it's easier to, to learn and access and look up and discover, and it's more intuitive. Wait, like, sorry. There's a user interface for the Vue CLI? Yes. Is it, what does it have, like drop-down menus and autocomplete and st- Everything and visualizations for your, for your builds and all that. What is it, an Atom? It's like, or a... Uh, Electron. Electron app. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's pretty cool. Yeah. And it, you see this, like once you start looking at this, you see it everywhere. So part of my article that I, that I wrote about this, like, okay, so no, no front end developer codes animations and Bezier curves without looking at a visualization of the, of the animation. There's another movement where we're trying to visualize our state machines in and front-end development. And obviously, you need a visualization for that. So there, there are all these visual assistance tools. Why do I need a tools. state machine for UI development? Can you repeat your question? Why do I need a state machine for UI development? Because there are a lot of states, and you want to control the transitions between them. And either you are controlling them implicitly and doing a lot of if-then-else, or you have a formal explicit state machine where you can actually uh, visualize it and check that you're programmatically, uh, that, that, you're, that you're definitely you know, thinking about all the, all the edge cases that are going through them. Interesting. Um, there's a lot of states in UIs. I don't know if people it's true. appreciate it's that. It's like, are you on mobile? Are you on desktop? How, what's the size of the window? Where are you in the window? Which parts of the form have you filled out? That's a ton of states. Is text selected? Are you in the, are you, you scroll to this certain height? Yeah. Um, yeah. Is, are, How long is, have you is, been on the page? Is something asynchronous in flight? Are you all, yeah. It's, there's just ton, mm. there's just a ton of stuff, and you know that, that that's and a that's a huge movement use in React. Like finite state machine logic. Yes. To, wow. Yes. And that's one of many examples. Like, why are we moving? Why has VS Code been so successful over Vim and you know other other editors? Like, it's we want a visual interface. Even yeah. even even when we're coding, we want to click around. So it's a very fundamental human nature, and I think. When we develop software, we, we tend to have a fixed idea. Like basically when, whenever we start is when we freeze our conception of what software is. Right. That's <laughs> so true. That's so true. And actually that's, that calcifies something I was trying to, th I was thinking about like when I was thinking about this interview, cause you start programming what, like three years ago, two, two years ago, two yeah. years ago. That's incredible, man. Thanks. Uh, and you have a pretty fresh perspective. Like you've you've really gone deep. You've been just engorging yourself in information, and which is really admirable. You know that's my style too. Like I just love people who just consume tons and tons and tons of information at a, at a fast rate. And you've done that. And because you are not normal, like you've reached a level of maturity in your career very quickly, and yet you are not normalized to where like I began my career when like. Java was the thing. Java was the, on, the only game in town when it came to enterprise applications. I mean, there was a little bit of Python, a little bit of Rails, but it was mostly just Java. And the way that front-end people programmed was like Sublime Text. And you're not using Sublime Text. You're using like Text Wrangler or like something, some text editor. But there's certainly no IDE you would use, like maybe WebStorm if you are like a weirdo. <laughs> but now, like you said, you're using an IDE. Like... Or you're insane, <laughs> right? Isn't that's that's the case, right? I mean, do, or, or are there still I mean, like we're, text we're generalizing huge swaths of the population that's great. here? That's um, great. But yes, in, in, in general, that's I do come at it with. So I, my philosophy professor calls this uh, unencumbered as I am by any knowledge of the matter, and then he'll and then he'll like put up his criticism, <laughs> criticism. Uh, and it's correct. It should make sense from scratch because that, that is kind of reasoning from first principles rather than reasoning by comparison and similarity and, and what, what you had, like the, your reference point from before. So I don't know what the goal of that is. I mean, I do think that as I've seen this, like sort of, and I've understood and absorbed what this no-code movement is about, I think that that's a very big motivation for why people are seeing so much potential for this. And it's funny because if you look at, so the, the definitive 
inspiration for Vlad Magdalene when he started Webflow, which you had him on the podcast before, was Brett Victor when he, when he talked about the future programming at the Dropbox conference in 2011. And he was talking about the state of human computer interaction research in the 1970s. And they had all of this mapped out, all of it, none of it. That we, none of this stuff that we're doing is new to the people in the 19, 1970s. We just didn't execute on it, <laughs> and, and it's and it's pretty absurd because like it's 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 pretty obvious like what we humans find more intuitive than not. It's just well, as Vlad said in that episode, takes a lot of people work. People have been trying for a while. Like people have been trying the no code stuff. It just the the tech wasn't there. The yet. Platforms need to need to improve a lot, and JavaScript has you know made it a lot more feasible to do things in the client side that previously was just impossible. Um, so, uh, and I think, I, and it's not not necessarily the case that we needed JavaScript. Like we had a lot of this in Flash and Visual Basic and what have you in in, in previous platforms. But I think it's still a worthwhile goal. And it doesn't invalidate the overall thesis that a no-code tool is more accessible and therefore more valuable, actually, uh, even though it may be less powerful than a full-code approach. I think the term you coined, the GUI economy thing, I think that's a that's a legit that's a legit way of looking at it. Like yeah. the idea that you've got this wide buffet of different APIs to select from. And the way that people have been thinking about it is like, oh yeah, you get a ton of APIs, you write some JavaScript glue code, and then you write an entire user interface. Like, and all you're doing is like cutting and pasting React components. It's that easy. Like it's, that's not easy. That takes a lot of time. And certainly it's better than writing like a bunch of custom backbone components or, you know, even custom React components before there was a, you know, a bunch of ones that you could take off the shelf. But what you're pointing out is that why even do that? Like we have pretty well-defined primitives for building UIs why go as low level as piecing them together in terms of React components? Why not do bumper bowling? Like use Webflow or Bubble or Zapier, Airtable, Airtable. Zapier, like Typeform, whatever the hell like low code thing you want to use because you're like, it's still going to take a ton of work. You're still going to have to build a user interface. It's still going to take you a ton of time. You're still going to have to wire together all these APIs. And so there's still going to be some defensible advantage to your company that you're building. And And the GUI economy, the idea of selecting between these different... So what are the GUIs you're selecting from? You're selecting from like Webflow templates and... What what is what are the what is on market in the in the GUI economy? Oh gosh, this is such a huge debate right now. Webflow does a ton of stuff. It's not just templates. It's also they they have a GUI for CSS. Like every single piece of every single field in CSS is modifiable in a visual manner. You can like slide and drag and drop in and click buttons to to, re- to center things in CSS, which is which is a known hard problem in CSS. But they also have an e-commerce solution. They also have a CMS solution. And those are all GUIs on top of an existing API that they provide for people to hook together. Why am I looking up documentation when I could just go click that? That's obviously way, way, way easier and way, way faster. But I do want to also make the point. So like the way you're thinking about GUIs right now, you're stuck in this mode of like the end consumer consumes the GUIs, but also the developer consumes GUIs as well. What is all of this cloud and serverless and platform as a service movement, but no code for backend? 
right? Like, <laughs> like when I deal with Firebase, I'm clicking around and I'm just like configuring my, my database and I'm setting, I'm setting stuff up. And as a front-end developer, I'm so enabled by that because I can just, you know, copy and paste and, and chuck it in there and then that's it. What is like serverless? And, and there's a lot of other like code infrastructure as code movements where you're just sort of declarative, declaratively declaring your, your source. Like you're not setting up any of that. You're just sort of managing you're managing like your declarative template of the resources that you're using and everything else just figured out for you by some, some compiler approach, some of the source. So I want to be a little bit more expensive than these kind of end user no code tools, which, which is, you know, that that's a whole promising field in itself and user computing, but also as developers, we use no code tools in our daily work. And I really want to make, uh, drive that point across where like, as again, I, I, you know, as someone that works at Netlify, I do use other services as well and throw bones at Firebase and AWS. Like they all have good user interfaces that we all use all the time. Oh, you use Firebase and Netlify? No, no. In, in terms of personal projects. But I mean, you know, we, we have a ton of people who use Netlify with Firebase for, for databases and authentication and all that stuff. But like, I'm not ever, I and I was just, I was just discussing with one, one of my friends who is a prominent uh, JS developer, like nobody likes, like the de facto solution for coding authentication in Node.js is Passport.js. Mm -hmm. And that is regarded as easy. It was a revolutionary when it came out. Nobody wants to use it anymore because we are all sort of sold on this idea of we should farm that out to Auth0, Okta, Netlify, Firebase, and they would just set up my Twitter off and my email off in a, in a couple of clicks or cognito. Whatever. So the open, there's no open source ideologues that are like passport JS all the way. I'm sure. I'm sure if you look there's hard some. enough, you'll find them. But that but, that hard and fast, everything needs to be open source. That's kind of going away, right? Because because there's more. Because I think it's commoditized. Like there, it's commoditized, so it's yeah. cheap. People don't have a problem with it being closed source because it's cheap. Yeah. And it's not like lock any. It's just like yeah. If I it's it's like pay us enough to like. Hey, we're off zero. Could you please pay us enough to continue operating your authentication? Like, just pay us enough. We're not going to screw you over. Like, right? And that's the deal. And people are comfortable with that deal. Absolutely. And I mean, like the the economics and the lock in of platforms aside, I think that's a perfectly rational thing for developers to be doing because at the end of the day, you know, the way that you sign in is not going to differentiate your your product. So you should you should find that out to other people. But the, the point I'm trying to make is that the reason developers are are just like flocking in droves towards all these dedicated providers is because they are also no code tools already. Like for me, for when I use Netlify, I when I set up Netlify Identity, I'm literally clicking a couple buttons and I set up Google, Twitter, Facebook off, and that's the way I want to code. I, I want to spend my time on things with business value, things that matter. Everything else should be no code for me. I think that is generally true for everybody. And then, you know, then we can talk about end user computing and, and uh, what that means in terms of no code. But it's pretty like once you see it, you can't unsee it. Like everything is no, <laughs> no code. To help us talk through this emergent space a little bit more, uh, let's talk through another emergent space, one that you're more intimately familiar with, which is the Jamstack. Mm -hmm. Could you, so the Jamstack conference was a while ago. You're just deeply into the Jamstack because you work at Netlify. You're as deep into it as anybody. How does the low-code ecosystem compare to the Jamstack ecosystem? Wow. Uh, I think no-code is probably, as a, as a trend, Actually, as a Actually, for people term. who have no idea what it is, can you just give a brief overview of the Jamstack ecosystem and then we can compare sure. it? So Jamstack is this sort of umbrella term. So Jamstack stands for JavaScript APIs and markup. And that is a movement towards more static assets 
first as a platform for delivering web apps in general. We think that it is faster, more secure, and cheaper, more scalable to host apps and sites this way. And Netlify is founded entirely on this thesis and will live and die by its ability to serve the Jamstack developers. So Jamstack is a movement that's bigger than Netlify, but Netlify is trying to sort of, you know, be, the, be at the forefront. I think most people, by far, most people will be familiar with GitHub Pages. And GitHub Pages is where you host your docs. If, if, you're, on, if you're on GitHub and you're, you know, trying to, to host docs in the Python ecosystem and Ruby, like you, everyone hosts on GitHub Pages. And it is the simplest approach, right? You build the site, you host, you build to static files and you host it on a static host provider and, and, and it's super cheap and you never really go down because there's no server to overload. So that's the, that's the whole thesis. I, I can go deeper into that. But it, it, you know, it started uh, five years ago and I think it's really picked up steam since then. To go back to your original question of like, how do you compare that to no code? I'd say no code is a little bit newer in terms of like as a meme, as a, as a trend in, in tech. And I think they're very comparable because Jamstack is no-code backend, right? A lot of uh, Jamstack players are like uh, Zite, Netlify, Amplify uh, from AWS. And there's another bunch, bunch of other uh, smaller players. But we're, there are just objectively more front-end developers, more people who, who do JS, more people who want to work in products rather than platforms. So they much rather just employ a platform provider like Netlify to do all that while they work on their product. So that's good. That serves developers who are front-end developers, and there are more of them than people who are legitimately full stack. There are a lot of people who pre pretend to be full stack, but they're not. And so then you compare that to the mass of people who are, who are not developers. There, there are more of those. So I think there, uh, there is a lot more potential in terms of like raw numbers for the no-code movement. I think building the right abstraction like we talked about earlier is going to be way harder because these people are people who can't help themselves. Right. <laughs> they're just, once they run into trouble, they're stuck. Right. Whereas developers can figure it out and then they'll send you their bug reports and, and they'll, they'll help you PR the, the fixes, which is fantastic for us. No-code developers need a little bit more hand-holding. I think I kind of draw the analogy a little bit to the design space. So a, a lot of people in a lot of designers love Figma. Figma is like the hot new thing among Sketch and Photoshop and whatever whatever else else you have. Figma was started in the same year as Canva, which is a toy, a tool, a joke to designers. Like people laugh at Canva because like it's it, the only you, you drop in an image and you create a Facebook banner and it's and it's good. It's, it's great. So Figma started in the same year in Canva. Canva is now six times the size of Figma at least. And it's, it's, it's absurd. Like obviously both companies are fantastic. They're both unicorns. They're, they're both doing great, but there is this truth in mon there's money in the masses. And it does, I think have this like very interesting sort of uh, fractal dimension to it. So where Canva is easier to use? Canva is way easier to use. Yeah. If you've, if you've tried it out, definitely use it for your social media. Like Absolutely. Okay. Is yeah. that, I, oh, okay. I tried Figma the other day. Figma was awesome. Right. But Figma is a designer tool. It's Photoshop. Yeah. But like, I think. Easier than Photoshop. I think tools that are, tools that let non-Xs do X. Yeah. Are very interesting, are a very interesting right. category of tools. Right, right, right. So arguably, you know, no-code tools let non-coders do their coding stuff, you know, right. do, do commoditized coding stuff. Right. And that's a, that, that liberates a, a whole bunch of people. Netlify, Jamstack, let's non backend like you know people who would, who'd rather not spend their time on, on backend uh, hosting you know right. undifferentiated hosting right, stuff right. to just you know let let providers do that and and then they can focus on their their front end so i think that's an interesting like 
30,000 foot view of like comparing the two different ecosystems. Um, I'm probably uh, running roughshod over uh, a lot of a lot of different nuances, but does that make sense to you? It does. What code are you writing in the Jamstack? So uh, Jamstack is very much, you're writing your front end and then you're writing uh, any API glue code that is that is needed to, to, to piece your different APIs together. Is that? Yeah. Yeah, sure. And so, that's it. That's, yeah. <laughs> so is there a typical jam stack or the whole idea is just that there are lots of APIs and you, the markup is, I guess the, it sounds like basically the difference between the jam stack and the no code stack is in the jam stack, you have to actually write glue code. You are actually writing some backend glue code, whereas in the no-code stack, you have to find providers that can either give you something that looks like glue code, like Zapier, which is kind of a glue code as a service, or you have to have a GUI, one of these things from the GUI economy, that kind of comes with the custom backend glue code that you need pre-configured, and then the other difference is in the Jamstack, you are always making markup. So you are always designing your own GUI. But it kind of seems like in the limit, these are similar, heavily overlapping. Yes. Like heavily overlapping paradigms. Yes, absolutely. I think a lot of Jamstack users, and again, I, I'm trying to make that analogy from the foundation of these are just two different degrees of no code. Right. right. One's one one you kind of stop at the back end, the other you go all the way. And it's not clear like which is which is the, 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 the better approach, but they're all definitely better than doing everything yourself. Well it kind of seems like you can go from no code to Jamstack, but like Jamstack to no code, I don't think I've seen an example of that. I've seen like no code to Jamstack right. fairly often. Like the Moonlight, I don't know if you listened to the Moonlight interview, but like that was a really interesting one. Uh, this company Moonlight Work, where they start I mean, it's like led by a great developer. And I, I think Emma is also a developer. I think two de- two developers, at least one very, very strong developer. And the, they just pieced, it was one of these like pieced together a type form and, you know, a bunch of different backend things because that's the fastest way of validating it. Yeah. And then once it, they found traction, like build a bunch of custom infrastructure and gradually replace the no code stuff. But I don't see anybody doing, again, doing the opposite where you start with, mostly back-end situation, and then you figure out what your front-end is going to look like with markup, and then put Webflow in front of it. I've never seen that. Yeah. You, I mean, this it's probably a thing about supersets. Like, Jamstack is probably a, a superset of this of this overall, the ability that the, the abilities that you have in, 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 in the no-code space. Um, but that's just what code is. Code is so f- malleable and flexible that it can do literally everything. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes that's bad. And a lot of times it's bad. So I don't necessarily see a, see a bias in terms of like, you know, drawing that, like you can transfer from one side to the other. And yeah, I don't think that's necessarily better or worse. It's just different. Are enterprises building Jamstack applications? So they are, and I think they're in different stages of adoption. Uh, so I, we kind of split things in terms of sites and apps. And sites, it's much clearer because uh, you, just, you do have static content 
and you're just serving it. And, you know, that, that should be as cheap and secure as possible um, with minimal downtime, yada, yada, yada. Obviously, put it on... Enterprises have plenty of static content. Put CDN, yeah. Documentation. So, so one of our sort of uh, primary examples on, of this kind of thing is Citrix, which moved uh, everything on Citrix.com. Trinet, which moved everything on Trinet.com uh, onto the Jamstack. Oh, I, I, I remember... Did China.com? Trinet. Trinet, okay. <laughs> yeah, but like, you know, everyone is familiar with Trinet. It's a, it's a household name for, for payments and HR stuff. And, and so I remember the third category now, e-commerce. So, uh, okay. so, so there's sites and then there's e-commerce and then there's apps. And e-commerce mm. is like this weird in-between thing where like it's kind of a site. It has to be uh, performance is hugely important because of, you know, people uh, being very fickle and, and bouncing if, if they don't load in, in some certain amount of time. SEO searchable is very important, but then there is a lot of dynamic activity that has to happen. You have to have shopping carts, you have to have, you know, people logging in and, and, and remembering purchases and so on and so forth. So e-commerce players uh, at Jamstack.conf, we had Loblaw, which is one of the bigger uh, retailers in, in Canada, uh, moving their entire site over and talking about their... From what? performance benefits i think it was just like a self-hosted like sort of ec2 type solution oh uh, wow so it moved from like some ec2 like node app to to a to a netlify app i don't even think it was node i think it was some other language um okay. i'm i'm not too i, I didn't really right. ask too many questions they, they replatformed they replatformed to uh, the Jamstack. And, and for that, the performance is the key consideration because for e-commerce, you know, every second is like a million dollars or whatever. Interesting. And then the final case is the app use case. And that, you know, is like, can you deliver a progressively enhanced static app that uh, rehydrates into a dynamic uh, JavaScript app on the, on the front end? And that is covered by PayPal, which also recently talked about how they moved uh, to the Jamstack um, at QCon. The... E-commerce example. So in that example, if they're going from a dynamically built, like I land on the website and the website is being dynamically built and it's slower because of that, they're moving from that to a website that is basically pre-compiled, cached, and therefore is going to deploy or is going to serve user requests much faster. So this is just, it's just latency. So the build process, the build process gets front loaded and pushed out to the CDN rather than I land on the website, I add something to the shopping cart, I search for something else. And all of these things are like a very, very heavy request response that requires building an entire web page and sending it back to you. you. Instead, you just have this, situation where the website is built and yeah pushed out to the CDN. I like that matching of a lot of this stuff, a lot of like page visits are people who are never going to pay you, right? Usually you should match that with a more static approach where it should just be served free from the from the cheapest infrastructure that you have. But as they have more activity, then you match it towards something that scales up. Um, so Jamstack is is kind of like the counterpart of serverless where we really like uh, to scale things up. You don't have to use serverless. You can use microservices as well. But it definitely, like, I like that pairing of like free users, you know, use commoditized static uh, assets as you engage, as you as you start interacting with our services more. What do, what are you talking? What application about of serverless are you talking about here? Like for example, we're talking about the e-commerce app, right? Uh-huh. Like if, is it's unacceptable to me that let, let's say it's Black Friday and uh-huh. uh, and a million people land on my page at once. Yeah. The people who are not paying for anything and they're just checking out your your inventory could bring down my server. 
right? Like, because if I have a, if I'm talking like pre Jamstack, if you're not on a Jamstack, if you're serving everything on request and you're just like looking at all these concurrent users, right? you don't know which one is someone who's going to convert. You, you're just serving this content on request. And, and so like they could bring down your server because just because you, you, you have, you know, maximum concurrency limits and all that. And so like, it's, it's to me, that's very interesting to, to say that, okay, I'm going to just pre-render all this static content and that will always be up. And anything that needs to scale, I'm, I'm just going to whittle that down to the smallest possible atom of like just that API response mm. instead of like regenerating the entire page all at once, which is what you would do, right? Mm-hmm. In, in, in sort of the old uh, pre-Jamstack paradigm. Does that make sense? It does. And now that we've we've gone down this track, I want to talk a little bit about the pre-compilation step and kind of the, the Jamstack variety of ways of getting an application delivered to the user, like created and delivered to the user. So I don't know if you listened to the... There's a Gatsby episode we did. I didn't. Okay, you listened to that one. So like we did an episode with Gatsby a couple of days ago. I don't really understand how Gatsby works. I don't understand why so many people use it. Can you help me understand Gatsby and tell me like how widespread is the usage and how are people using it? Okay. I think there are probably definitive numbers out there on on, whites, on how widespread Gatsby is. A lot of these people actually track like percentage of top million users, how many of them are traceable as like Hugo, Gatsby, Jekyll, you know, all these site generator. And you can using, I think, builtwith.com as the authoritative uh, trackers on, on those things. Um, I don't have them at, at hand, so I, I can't really comment. But uh, and I think in terms of React, which so I kind of place it as this, like JS is huge. JS, it is the biggest programming language apart from Excel. We won't talk about Excel, but <laughs> JS is huge. React is, is huge within JS and Gatsby is huge within React. So it's kind of like top, 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 but it is smaller concentric circles. And so it's, it's big enough that like the React docs use it, a ton of like, you just go look, go look on their showcase, uh, gatsbyjs.org slash showcase. And you would describe it as a build tool? Yes, it has a build tool in it. So does that make sense? It does. <laughs> so no, it, so that a lot of JS, like a lot of JS uh, has, um, you know, different role, jobs to be done in it. Gatsby has multiple jobs to be done. And I think you, you sort of talked about that in your episode. One of them is, uh, you know, providing that default Webpack configuration and then, you know, letting people modify it, but providing that good default where you can, you can build a performant React app, which is, which is a pain point for, for people. That's What's why. What's a Webpack configuration? Uh, so what Webpack is, is the, predominant build tool in JS. Uh, there are others like Rollup and uh, Parcel, which are gaining steam, but Webpack is by far the biggest. It's hard to configure. A lot of people don't want to sort of set it up manually just because there's a lot of small details to get right. And, and no surprise, web performance is really hard. So Gatsby is the whole pitch of like, use us and what we will, we will give, you the, give you the give does, does it give you? Best, uh, best performance. You know, I myself don't even know everything, hmm. but uh, I'll just give you some simple ones like minification of JavaScript. So, you know, oh. long, long variable names, helpful during development, but why are you serving them over the wire when, oh, when it just okay. compiles down the code? So s- stuff like that. Like really basic blocking and tackling stuff, Webpack is really good at. And then Gatsby tries to just be that best performance, like best of breed performance. So um, simple things like when you're including a, like a, an image, a lot of times you're including the raw image, which is like, I don't know, like 60 megabytes, okay. and you're serving it in like a 200 
pixel <laughs> square, yeah. obviously you should downsample it, right? Where are you going to do that? Uh, you can sort of do that ahead of time, or you can just stick it in your Webpack config. A lot of all this stuff is is being stuck into the build tools. Guillermo Rausch, which you also interviewed, uh, kind of views this like there's a huge. This is hugely contentious among some parts of the JS community because. A lot like JS was not meant to do any of this. Brendan Eich was like, we just want to put some script stuff in into HTML, and then that sh that should be all, all it <laughs> yes. does. Uh, a lot of people learn JS from view source. I would just right click in view source on on the page. Having a build step in between uh, obfuscates a lot of this code and makes it a little bit more inaccessible, which is a problem. But the benefits that have been unlocked from putting all this build tooling in for ultimately the vast number of users that will never see your code, but they'll see the, in, the user impact of your code, which yeah. is load speed and like performance and all that. So Guillermo calls it uh, Pandora's box. Like It's open. Deal with it. <laughs> we have to have build tools now. Right. Okay. So this is really useful to me because so now I understand that like basically the JavaScript that you, that you write Generally speaking, it could load on the user's browser. You could ship it to the user as the code that you write, but... It's just guaranteed to be suboptimal. <laughs> guaranteed to be suboptimal. Guaranteed to be slow. And Webpack is a tool that gives you configuration options for how to make that code look differently, uh, be packaged differently, be delivered differently. So maybe it's maybe it's a smaller blob of code, literally a small amount of resource that you would have to ship to the user's browser. Maybe it's shrinking the size of the images without creating any kind of lossiness or blurriness or compression issues. You, know, you can imagine some number of things. So that are, someone's probably yelling at me now, so I probably should shout out the bigger benefit, uh -huh. which is Webpack's original claim to fame, which is modules in, in JavaScript. JavaScript was originally one giant file. And you just you just like you know you grab around around this and you you look for the things and and if you if you wanted to interoperate between different scripts you'd you'd probably stick things on on the window and just have it be a magic global that you kind of import somewhere and that was the way things were for twenty years you know the module system came along and there there are different proposals but eventually ES modules won out and Webpack was one of the earlier earlier uh, implementers of those uh, there were there were others before like RequireJS but those are kind of on their way out now so Webpack like brings modules like we we want to write maintainable apps on the front end you want to take javascript from like it used to be a toy language and you want to write serious apps you probably should have different files like with different responsibilities and different names and you know have some sort of build tool to cat them all together in a sensible way so that is chief benefit because it import invented the import export syntax and then everything else you sort of stick into the build lifecycle um, to optimize your your build but having modules is important Right, okay. And then Gatsby, I guess, is also useful because it can reach out to a bunch of other resources and pull those resources in prior to right, the, the web the, the content mesh uh, approach. Content mesh. Which, which is more ambitious than... So I do want to make clear that so, uh, Netlify is not... You, you don't have to use Gatsby, you use Netlify. And Netlify has a bunch of other... It is very very much tooling agnostic uh, to all this. So there's Jekyll, there's uh, Hugo, there's uh, Nuxt. There's, there's a whole bunch of other tools that are, that are usable with, with uh, Netlify. And Gatsby is just one of them. But Gatsby is probably the most ambitious in terms of its data pipelining. Because mm -hmm. a lot of static site generators just pull from Markdown and then generate static pages. And that's pretty much all they did. All they did. Gatsby is able to pull any arbitrary data in. Um, so as you talked about in that, in that episode, um, and sticks it through a gra GraphQL layer just to be more accessible. Uh, and it's also trendy. 
<laughs> it's sexy as hell. Right. Moving on. It's late 2019. How do you see the difference between the React ecosystem and the Vue ecosystem? Ooh. So I'm, uh, I should d- d- disclose my biases. My career is basically built on React, and I'm a moderator of the r slash React.js subreddit. Um, so I, I do have my cards uh, a lot in, in one side of things. I did start out in Vue, so I found Vue easier to get started with. And the main reason I switched to React is because there are objectively more jobs. Um, if you go onto the Hacker News Jobs Trends scraping page, um, React has been on top for... 30 months, it's ridiculous. Like there's this meme of like, there's a new front end framework every few days. It's not true anymore. No, it's not. <laughs> um, so things have calmed down a little bit. Uh, I think where it's shaking out is Vue does have a sort of more com- community feel. And again, like I'm gonna probably gonna piss off a bunch of Vue people, but they are my friends. And my boss, Sarah Drasner, is a, a very prominent member of the Vue community. So the Vue has more community feel because it's started by an independent hacker, Evan Yu, who, who you should probably should have in the pod at some point. Um, I already did. Oh, you did? Okay, cool. You need to do it again. <laughs> yeah, totally. Uh, he's, he's doing awesome things, especially with, with uh, Vue 3. He's an inspiration. Yeah, so they have a 30-person core team, and they all do different pieces, business pieces, and none of them reports to any major company, although I think their uh, GitLab is one of their biggest users. Uh, oh. GitLab. No, I said, ooh. Ooh, yeah. Ooh. Cool. Yeah, no, I mean... And China. It's very, very important. And, and in China. Chinese companies. Exactly. Whereas React is famously from Facebook, and there are people who are just morally against that, and you can never change uh, their opinion. But it's hard to argue against before anything in React is released, it's tested at scale by Facebook.com. Like, that is just true. Uh, the concurrent mode stuff that you talked about with uh, the Gatsby folks that has just been released um, was tested in production in FB5, the, the big rewrite of, of Facebook.com uh, that, that just rolled out. And that's before they really released it to us. Usually it's kind of the opposite. You kind of have to like release stuff in open source and then maybe if you're lucky, some big comp- corporation will pick it up for, for you. Uh, this way it's kind of like the reverse. Like people who are employed at Facebook, they have like a thousand React developers. They're testing out this API for me and I only just get to benefit from what they find out. Um, so, so I think that's kind of how it breaks down. Uh, obviously the money is super important. I think the, the people who use React at scale is super important and that's a huge ecosystem benefit that React enjoys for now. I think that the cross-platform uh, uh, focus of React, like React is not just React. Like right. the React core team is eight people. The React native team is 30, 20. And then React web is like the same size. But like React is not about React web. React is about the universal cross-platform language that you can author the same code base potentially on your mobile apps, Android, iOS, and, and web. Very, uh, very bold, but it's at least revolutionized front end in terms of Proving out that uh, components are the way to go. So Vue, Svelte, yeah. Angular, all move towards components now. And then uh, immediate mode versus uh, retained mode in terms of the way you want to declaratively author front-end experiences, that's also been pretty much proven out as well. So React, React has a lot of credit to its name because of all these innovations and um, 
Um, I think it's I think it's got more to come. It's a little bit like the easy fruit has gone, like the the, the low hanging fruit has gone, and now it's trying to pitch this concurrent mode thing, which is so hard to explain. And I do mm. it. I, I I do talks on this, and mm. I find it hard to explain. Mm. Um, and it, it it just is what it is. UI, if you want to get it right, if you want to get it intuitive, like a lot of us as users, we take it for granted. But there are a lot of people sweating the details behind uh, the scenes. Mm. Yeah, it's gonna be exciting to see. I mean, the UI layer is really heating up, uh, and it's really getting technical. Like talking to the Flutter people, like the Flutter's Flutter is very technical, and but I don't think that's really like a v, that's like that's not a web layer. That's it's just like cross platform. It's fine. The, the The React team draws inspiration from all UI interfaces, uh, all three experiences, right? And other interfaces are drawing from UI. So Swift UI is like kind of like the big new thing in in Apple app development, and that. They directly credit React for uh, their oh, really? their API. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, pretty, pretty huge. Google also has apart from Flutter, they have another initiative. I can't remember. Go ask uh, Leland Richardson, who left Airbnb to work uh, to work on this at Google. Uh, I think it's like Jetpack, or I don't remember the name. Jetpack. All right. It's it's not. But I want to say one thing. Uh-huh. So I think there's this there's. We're not done yet in terms of movement. Uh, I do want to sort of throw the bone out there in terms of like, you know, that, that whole, like what happens in five years, five mm. years question. There is a movement towards more compiled approaches. Like Flutter is a compiled approach. Mm. Uh, whereas React is, is, is all in on this JavaScript runtime and then, right. you, and then you have bridges across. The ongoing research in all front-end frameworks right now, except for React, is more of this compiled approach two words, whatever whatever target device is being run on. So Angular is exploring Angular Ivy. Ember has the Glimmer VM, which, which they're always harping about. Vue is also exploring a compiled approach. And Svelte is uh, the new framework that I'm super excited about that is built from the ground up to be a compiler. And it compiles from the component authoring format that you're, that you're writing in to direct DOM instructions, which is obviously smaller and What's the difference between React having server-side rendering and a compiled approach. So good, that's an interesting question. So there is a very clear difference. So, so server-side rendering is your, uh, you're rendering you know, all this HTML out, whereas the compiled approach is saying, all right, this parts of the runtime you don't use, so I'm going to take it out of the JavaScript bundle itself. So one affects the HTML that, you, that the users see. One affects the JavaScript that is ultimately generated as the final output of the app. Does that make sense? No, I don't think I understand that. So. Ask me more. Ask me. Ask me the same question. Well, co- so we're talking about comp- compiled approaches. So, like, whatever. For like, the the degree to which you can compile something for the web, that's just like getting it down to JavaScript and HTML, right? Yes. Like that is what compilation means on the web. Yes. So, if we're talking about Vue, like that's as compiled as you can get. If we're talking about mobile, then you can get into like ARM. Comp, like I think, like ARM instructions, sure. and I think that's what Flutter does. So you can you can compile your UI down into uh, like machine code. I think you have a misperception in what server side rendering does. Then oh, okay, because server side rendering is purely generating HTML. So like uh, a typical single page app in 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 the HTML, JS, CSS front end space is a blank page with a single div, and then the the, the JavaScript that is coded in one of these frameworks hydrates that in, into uh, into a full you know DOM node with all the other HTML stuff. Oh, 
So this takes on ex- the client. On the client, this okay. takes extra work, and it's 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 slower to show something up on on screen. So server side rendering is to say do this on the server. So the HTML that you send over already has all the all the extra DOM nodes that would have been generated. So you're immediately able to first you're able to stream it. So as part of the page comes down, Ooh, browsers, yeah. browsers by default already show stuff on screen. But you're still, I mean, it's not just HTML though. You're also serving. It's like HTML and JavaScript, right? I HTML mean, first. Okay. It's the way that the way that pages load uh, in the web is that you send the HTML first. HTML oh, okay. has references to JS, and then uh-huh. it does the subsequent requests. Okay. So you want to have the if you want to have the maximum best theoretical performance, you have to have everything in the HTML. And the way you do that is you server side render. So Ooh, this is a right. totally like it's a separate discipline from compiling. I'm trying to make that ex- as extremely clear as possible. <laughs> then what when you're referring to compiling and you're saying like view is focused on compiling, what kind of compilation are we talking about here? Compiling out its size. So like every everyone is sort of obsessed like we have to be fast we have to have the minimum bundle size, right? So you have it if you want to provide features you you typically have to add to your bundle. Right, so so view to to have a default runtime. By the way, I don't know what the default view runtime is. Let's say it's thirty kilobytes. Let's say you only use five kilobytes of those. Right now, you're still shipping all thirty, right? Which is extra dead weight. You're not using it. So the idea is that you're compiling, you're statically looking your 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 code. And well, you saying, send less of the view runtime. Yeah, you're only sending five. Oh wow. Yeah, so it's that's a huge step change. That's it's huge for Angular, it's huge for Vue, uh, it's huge for Svelte. This is not a professional benchmark by any means. I had my I, I previously had my blog on Gatsby. It had over 100 kilobytes of React uh, code JS code shipped by default, and when I rewrote it to Svelte, it dropped to nine. So that's huge uh, in terms of performance. It's hard to argue against that, even though it will look fine on Lighthouse scores and it'll look it'll work fine on most modern American phones. Uh, that does matter for the rest of the world. Sure. Yeah, you want your application to render performantly in Africa under like crappy cell phone conditions. Right. So, uh, yeah, go ahead. So, but why are you, I don't understand the word compilation here. You're using the word compilation to describe trying to reduce the amount of runtime, meaning like React has a runtime, meaning like this is the way that re- the React, the core React infrastructure interprets React components and breaks and allows them to perform as you want them to. And and if you can write your application in a certain way, or if your application can be compiled in a certain way, you have to ship less runtime over the wire to the client. You're terming that, quote, compilation? So you're essentially compiling the runtime. Okay. There's there's the raw there's all the raw code hmm. for the runtime, right? You're compiling then you the write, runtime based on the what application you, what you actually use. Yeah. That's cool. Stick that in your build tool, and you know you got you got some pretty fast apps. But React is not pursuing this idea. React has explored ways to do it, though they. It sounds so hard. Their perspective. So, by the way, this is like extremely sensitive. You'll get in Twitter wars over this stuff. I can't wait because people are very passionate about uh, you know shipping performant code, and of course that's our job. The way I'll put it is that React doesn't think this is the right thing to tackle. Like when you're ship when you're compiling your 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 framework runtime, which is your, your footprint of your framework, that's a local optimization versus the overall app code, which is hundreds of kilobytes, right? Like let's say Instagram.com is two point five megabytes. So 
What features can you stick? Let's let's say you take the runtime as a given. What features can you stick into that that make that optimize your overall app runtime? That's something that React is very very interested in in pursuing because they have that problem at Facebook, right? So they'll they'll do things like code splitting with uh, React Lazy and Suspense. They'll do things like partial hydration, so having a runtime stream, uh, streaming things in and then hydrating things as go as as you go along without blocking user without blocking user input because running that JavaScript does block user input unless you time slice it. All of this React is basically the only player on the block doing that. So I kind of classify it as you either optimize your framework footprint, which is that 30 kilobytes, whatever, or you optimize whole app, which you can also do in other fr- frameworks. But React is trying to innovate in terms of the APIs to do that, to make it easier. How did you get so fluent in programming in two years? I don't like you're, know. I you, you have a lot more expertise than the average person that started programming two years ago. I don't know. The, the approach that I'm known for is called learning in public. And that's kind of like my hashtag that I, that I try to uh, encourage people to do. And the main way to make sure you know what you know is to take notes of it, put it out there, get corrected on it, right? To teach it to other people. And you just be really, really freaking solid by the end of it. Like you cannot help but to be really great, really, really good at it. I think it just takes the guts to to know that. Like again, not everybody can do that because some people are in vulnerable situations. But barring that, if you can put yourself out there, people come and support you. Like the way that I learned a lot about React as I started putting notes on about it. And Danny Bramov came and uh, helped me out on, on like vetting some of these uh, some of the blog posts that I was doing. And I became better by that. And Dan got to practice messaging and like make, got to make sure that misinformation wasn't out there. And just by being a content creator and uh, consistently creating like sort of learning exhaust, you put yourself in the top 1% of like people, because they're like, you know, you know, there's this, there's this, it's called the 1% rule. Like 90% of people don't, they're just kind of lurking. They, they don't really participate. 9% like will comment and then 1% actually create stuff. By being a content creator and constantly putting yourself on the line and just reading everything available that's out there. Like, you know, we're, we're talking about consuming information. I went back in, into your backlog and listened to, you know, almost every episode of SE Daily and, and I'm a better engineer for that. I think a lot of people, it's available to them. They just don't practice it in public as much. Like I will, like, I will take something, I'll remix it, put it in my own words, put it out there, let myself be corrected because uh, Paul Graham has this, has this sort of uh, philosophy of like, keep your identity small, right? Yeah, I love my, that one. That's my, a identity, great essay. my identity is not tied up in my work. Like I can be wrong because this is just, this represents the best state of me right now, but please correct me. Please yeah. tell me I'm, I'm terrible at, at what I do right. because my biggest haters will be my biggest teachers. And I think, I think the more I sort of practice that, the more it sort of helped me um, get better and, and learn from different perspectives. And uh, it's been really helpful in my career. Definitely. I mean, I agree with that. Like if you can kind of subdue the most surface level ego drives just a little bit. I mean, we all have our egos, like, and you can't escape it. But like back when I used to play poker, like I would always be asking people like, hey, I know I did something wrong in this hand. Please tell me what I did wrong. Like, please. Yeah. Because you're not even like worried about feeling ashamed about this current situation. What you're worried about is the iteration and making the same mistake over and over and over and over again. You're just trying to avoid that. Yeah. Uh, The way I put it is that you can learn 
so much on the internet for the low, low price of your ego. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure at the volume that you put stuff out there, you've probably been ashamed before. Of oh, like, yeah. You're, you're like, oh, God, what did I do? Like, you were looking at an app that I made earlier today, and I was like, and you, you commented on something about it, something about the appearance of it, and I was like, you know, you're actually right. Like, this is abhorrent looking right from the but, outside looking in but you shipped point. but i shipped yes but i shipped and you know reed hoffman would give you an a plus on that because his whole his whole thing is your first release you should be embarrassed by right mm. if you if you wait till you're proud of it you, you're probably it too like late. release 15 or 20 or something but you still work it's a it's a work in progress like i'm not yeah. proud, i'm i i'm a tech speaker now and i you know do a lot of talks i'm not proud of the the, the, the stuff that i do the strange distributive nature of the internet that the virality of certain pieces of content means it's a maximum function and not an average function right it's uh it, the mm. internet rewards spiky mm. people rather than 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 sort of meet uh, medium like stable people mm. like you want to be unstable a little bit <laughs> right. you want to be spiky because the, the your worst stuff by definition well, you don't want the downside to be too too down right you, you shouldn't be a terrible human being but your worst stuff by definition will not be seen and your best stuff will be shared endlessly well your worst stuff on twitter will be seen and surfaced i'm talking yeah i'm talking you're talking about quality work. not, not yeah. like abhorrence of no, personality no no yeah, that's a different dimension. But like, is, isn't it great? Like that that just bias, biases you towards it creating more frequently, often shipping. <laughs> I've made so much crap. Yeah. <laughs> Same here. Um, and, and I think JavaScript is a little bit like that. JavaScript has a ton of crap in it. Right. A ton. But why does it keep winning? <laughs> yeah, because the most people use it. So it's you just, so easy to you get, get started. Get, yeah. You just get more people in it and people ship a ton of crap, but they make good stuff too. Okay. A little bit of stuff on business indie hacker businesses versus venture-backed startups in 10 years will there be more people working for indie hacker businesses or working for large venture-backed corporations wow on that metric alone i would say venture-backed uh, more people working for venture-backed and that's just because indie hackers have their own very particular unique mentality and a lot of Indie hackers are drawn because they don't want to work with a ton of bureaucracy and, 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 and code. So, so you just like in terms of raw numbers, uh, corporations are made to scale. And, and we have the playbook for that. Indie hackers, each individual indie hacker needs that activation energy to be the creator. And just like a lot more people are, are not in that game, <laughs> if that makes sense. And 10 years is not enough for a cultural shift in that direction? I don't, I don't think we'll ever get there. It's, it's just the really? human. We're talking about, we just talked about the Zips law, the, the 10%, 9%, 1% rule. To be an indie hacker, you have to be the top 1% on the 1% to actually want to ship and, and, and take the instability and go do something on your own. It's so much easier to be middle management. It's so much easier to be to have status easier at Easier in the short term. At Google. I mean, you, you do decently well at, at, at a big uh, you know, fan company right now. You know? So it's, it's absolutely not clear. Hmm. I, yeah, not clear. <laughs> Give me your take on influencer engineers. Ooh, they exist. <laughs> No, like you cannot deny, like a lot of people like try to pretend that they don't. I would say this, no, no, com no Netlify, Stripe, freaking Apple, right? There's the regular support line and then there's the influencer support line. Nobody has, nobody will fess up to like treating influencers uh, differently than regular people, but they do. Right, like that's that's what DHH uh, did with uh, with the Apple Card incident recently. So uh, I'm I'm saying I don't like, know that story. 
Oh, so do, do you want me to tell it? Uh, uh, well, I, so I, I assume I assume basically the story is DHH. He's a loud voice. Somehow got to the front of the line on some issue. Yes, and that happens. Like that happened. That, that's fine. It happens in consumer services. Right. You're a big deal there, but also in, in developers and engineers. You know, that's a reality that like people pretend doesn't exist. Like they want. We want to treat everyone fair and equal. Uh, and unfortunately, people have some people have louder voices than others, and and they do get preferential treatment. Um, and just as a result of normal human behavior, not as a result of any sort of broad bias. So David Perel, who is who's a sort of who studies these kinds of things, calls these naked brands the idea that we want to achieve more th- authenticity, that we want to identify with individual people rather than than overall companies. And influencer engineers are a big culture of of that in in software. I think you know, who are the brand names in, in cloud? Like I think of Kelsey Hightower and like anything that he likes, I automatically totally. like, right? Like, and it's not like we want to delegate to authority. Uh, we, we're just like kind of tribe herd animals like that. And that's absolutely fine because, you know, people have skin in the game. Like influence engineers know that like if they are, you know, become corporate shills, they'll be found out and, you know, that all the sort of hard work that they had uh, will, will be lost. So they, they try very hard to, mm. to keep their own personal mm. brand separate from the, the company brand. Right. And that benefits the company as well as the engineer. So arguably, I'm you know, on that path. Somewhere. And I'm not super comfortable with that. Like, like I worry that uh, it's a distribution that channel. the mob will come so for like, me. Y- y- oh, dude, for sure. In this day and age, for sure. But like, and people like recently, so the, the former manager of React, uh, Sophie Alpert, she recently got an email saying that they would pay her $600 to contribute to a GitHub repo just to give that veneer of <laughs> credibility. A GitHub repo, right? Dude, you should see the, uh, I mean, the crypto the crypto stuff is way oh worse. yeah yeah crypto influencer there, there's a direct like, well there's a direct financial investment a uh, financial sort of incentive there yeah whereas for code it's not so clear it's right. mostly about influencing long-term pers- purchasing but decisions. that's hilarious that is the six hundred dollars for sophie Alpert to commit to a repository it's real that's some naked influencer stuff it's real so marketing you know finds its way around in 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 different forms uh you know your, your podcast you have a ton of influence engineers come on and that is absolutely the way we want we'd rather be marketed to like my team is totally. called developer experience and the, what there's this whole trend of developer advocates and evangelists and experience engineers coming out and we just don't want to be sold to by someone in a marketing department. So we sort of just called it a different name. Right. <laughs> yeah, pretty and much. That I should disclaim because I don't want to get fired for this, that that's a cynical view of this. Uh, the, the, the more informed view is that it's a two-way street rather than a one-way oh, street. Oh, definitely two-way street. I mean, it's just like a better form of marketing than airport ads. Like if you're going to spend your money on something, like yeah. don't spend on airport ads. Spend on There's this joke uh, going around that uh, no one ever got fired for buying an airport ad. And that's why you still see so many in, in SFO. Uh, <laughs> so influencer engineers are on the rise. David Perel calls these naked brands. They're, that's a very important insight that I think everyone should be aware is becoming a factor in our, in our environment, in our economy. I don't think it's necessarily unhealthy. I think people need to be authentic. They need to be sort of held to account if they are bad actors. But on the whole, more skin in the game is always good. Okay, last question. Any meta advice for how to ramp up quickly as a developer? Somebody who's at the beginning of their career. 
So I've done a couple talks and an essay on this called Learning Public. And that's the meta advice that like you, you take what you learn and you put it out there because a lot of people learn in, learn in private, which means they take what they learn and they sit on it and forget it. They, you know, they, they maybe apply it at work and then that's it. But like, if you want that magnifying, like focusing glass of public attention on your work to make you the best that you could be. So that's a really good sort of meta advice to accelerating. So once you start doing that, once you start making little, tiny little things like blog posts and meetup talks and all that, then you graduate towards the bigger things like courses and reusable resources. One of my best projects is a React TypeScript, is basically the de facto React TypeScript documentation for the community. And tons of people are, are adopting React and TypeScript. And I've taught all these, you know, people at Uber, Lassian, Pinterest, like React and TypeScript. And, and that is just for me creating these sort of reusable mm. resources. So now, first of all, I'm a thing. And so therefore the TypeScript community has to go, go through and vet my work. And that's great because I get taught by the TypeScript team. And now when everyone, every new piece of information that gets PR'd in, I learn from that as well. It's kind of like a, you know, you can open source code and your code gets better maybe by peer review. Yeah. You can open source knowledge as well. Totally. And maybe your, your knowledge gets better. And the, I think the primary function you, have, you provide there is writing and organizing information for people like you. And there, there may be a lot of people out there, but there are definitely a tribe of people like you out there. And they're looking for you. They can't find you. So just put out your work. Sean Wang, thank you for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure getting to know you over the years. Thank you. Always glad, a pleasure. Glad to meet out. you on the internet. Yeah. Same we'll, keep, we'll keep the conversation going. Cool. It's a pleasure. Thank you for having me. 